Well, 13 feet changed Travis New's life and the life of his family forever. When Travis was 13, he was addicted to meth, dealing dope, and an alcoholic. That was until God saved him in 1997 at the age of 24. Travis is a member of our church with his family and a friend. In 2003, he was blessed with marriage to his wife, Valerie, and they were eager for a life of marriage and a home full of children. He was a chaplain to the local jail, teaching as many as four times a week there and was taking classes with a view to becoming a pastor. He and his wife had a desire to minister, especially among the downtrodden, the hurting, the poor. In 2006, Travis took a job installing residential refrigeration and heating systems and he climbed a 13-foot ladder to weld a piece of pipe. His buddy held the ladder as he always did. The customer walked into the room, asked a question, his buddy stepped away and the ladder came down and Travis with it and his back on the ladder. His buddy and employer seemed to turn on him under playing the injury and after returning to work from being away, he was fired for insubordination when he couldn't physically complete a fishy assignment that required him to be on his hands and knees for five straight hours. So adding to pain, the rejection, and the loss of a job. Today, Travis experiences daily back spasms that can lock him to the couch for hours with pain that reaches down to his feet and often to his head causing recurring migraines, he says, which feel like his, uh, his eyes are being pushed out of his head. He gets maybe one good night of sleep a week and finds rest otherwise around 2 or, 30 in, 2 or 3 in the morning. So it's not what the couple had in mind when they got married in 2003. So many of our stories go. Neither was it what they had in mind at the start of 2004 when Travis began vomiting up everything, including water, for the first four months of the year. They discovered a number of problems, one problem causing the line of his stomach to deteriorate, another causing his body to produce an overabundance of acid which eats away at the stomach. Vomiting and chronic heartburn are just standard fare and the doctors aren't sure this will resolve itself. In the mix of all this, the couple suffered the loss of three children to miscarriages, a 10-month grueling death of a parent to cancer, an alienation from certain friends who suggest that a lack of faith or obedience must be the explanation for his suffering. Who can imagine? Valerie does well sometimes, but often enough her pillow is wet with tears. We can't imagine, because we're not in those shoes. But we've got our own. It doesn't seem to be the best move for God, a dramatic conversion, a couple longing to serve him in some unique ways, a man studying to preach the word, he falls off a ladder, welding a pipe. Was God checked out? Does God even care? And now with all this pain, can he do nothing? And if he can, why won't he? Is this something Travis did? Is there something Travis can do about this? Why all this torture day in and day out? Is it really necessary? Well, please open with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. We're in the second week of our five-week series through the book of Job titled Out of the Whirlwind. And this book was written for God's people to address irrational and apparently arbitrary suffering. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job, Job lost it all but kept his integrity and he did not curse God. Chapter 3 begins the rest of the book, a book composed mostly of speeches and poetry, vivid, beautiful, and imaginative poetry, as you'll see. We'll read a lot of it in the course of this sermon. Here in chapter 3, Job tells us how he really feels, and I'll read all of chapter 3 now. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness, that God may not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let the hope for light, let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide troubles from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? 
come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why did the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. The kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as hidden as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Now on the one hand, this is exactly what we might have expected to hear from the mouth of Job. In a single day, Job lost all of his wealth to invading neighbors. All of his assets, his servants, his workers were killed. And he lost his 10 kids under a house collapsed under winds. All in a day. And then with his children probably then buried, his own health failed and in a painful way with sores covering his body. So we might expect Job to say what Job said. But on the other hand, this is not what we would have expected to hear from Job at all if we remember the first two chapters. Upon hearing about the death of his children, Job grieved greatly, and yet he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now he's saying, Why did I not die at birth? His wife had only one thing on her honeydew list for Job once his health had failed. Sorry, that's two things. Curse God and die. Job thought that was a terrible idea then. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this we're told Job did not sin with his lips. Well, if we're honest, Job just became a lot easier to relate with. He went from superhuman to human, which is precisely what he is. Job is in turmoil because Job is a man in a state of great suffering. Job has questions because Job is a man in a state of great suffering. Job is not pondering the meaning of pain from an ivory tower, but from the hard, cold ground of life on earth. As one author and pastor put it, he's not asking armchair questions, he's asking wheelchair questions. And in these chapters, we witness a man suffering in the aftermath of tremendous, tremendous loss. His suffering, just like ours, though different in degree and kind, it's not just an event, but a process. It's not a simple experience, but a profoundly confusing and confounding experience. It reveals hidden and unseen beliefs and shapes hidden and unseen beliefs. And it's something we may endure in the company of others, but we endure alone. Chapter 3 is the first chapter in a section of poetic speeches that runs from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 31. And in chapter 3, we will encounter Job's theological crisis. In chapters 4 through 25, we'll witness Job's theological wrestling match. And in chapters 26 through 31, we'll hear Job's theological conclusions. His theological crisis, his theological wrestling match, and his theological conclusions. So what is going on with Job? The entire exchange of ideas in this section takes place in a conversation between Job and three friends. They've been with him for seven days and all of them silent until Job speaks. He breaks the silence with these despairing words we've read. What is going on with Job? Well, part one... Job's theological crisis, chapter 3. Job is in the middle of an intense theological crisis. That's what's going on with Job. He does not have the perspective that we were given in chapters 1 through 2. 
where we, are, where we enter the throne room of God and Satan is allowed to approach the throne of God and Satan challenges God and insists that anyone who would follow God and obey him and love him and who, who is righteous is only righteous because of what God gives them, righteous because they're blessed. And of course, God insists no, Job as a perfect example is one who is blessed because he is righteous. He is godly on account of God himself and not what God gives. So God allows Satan to take everything away from Job to see if Job will curse God and die, curse God to God's face, as Satan insists. And of course, Satan takes everything away and as we've heard, Job does not lose his integrity. He blesses God and does not curse him. We know all of this, but all Job knows is that everything was going great and then everything got turned upside down and God is in charge of the universe. And now over a period of seven days, Job has had some time to think. He's had some time to think. You might have seen the Time Magazine headline this week, you would rather endure public electric shocks than sit alone with your thoughts, study finds. I found that that was perfect for this sermon. Sure enough, in 11 studies, we found that participants, it says, typically did not enjoy spending six to 15 minutes in a room by themselves with nothing to do but think. Many preferred to administer electric shocks to themselves instead of being left alone with their thoughts. So they stick a person in a room and say, all right, we'll be here for like six to 15 minutes. This little contraption here will provide an electric shock. Just FYI, and they leave the room, leave the person alone. 67% of guys administered themselves an electric shock. One guy over 100 times. Uh, I think it was 20, yeah, it's 25% of women, whatever that means. So seven days is a long time to be alone with your thoughts, and especially the kind of thoughts that were tumbling around inside Job's head. In the moment of calamity, we don't usually need someone else's thoughts. We really do need and want to be alone. We don't necessarily want answers We want a hug or space or a shoulder, maybe an ear. But in time, we do need understanding. And that's where Job's at. When he opens his mouth, out comes a curse, out comes a lament, and out comes a question. He curses the day he was born, verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. He's not cursing the day that his life went bad. He's cursing the two days that he hates more, the day he was born and the night that he was conceived. He piles up words for darkness. Verse four, let the day be darkness and may God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. He speaks of gloom and cloud and blackness. Two verses, seven references to the day he was born, seven references to a kind of darkness. He personifies the day of his birth and he wants it dead. And for the night he was conceived, he doesn't feel any better about that. Of course, he was only there for part of the time, but he wants it empty, joyless, and since night is already dark, he wants it especially dark. Verse six, that night, let thick thick darkness seize it. Behold, let that night be barren, let no joyful cry enter it. And all this, verse 10, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. That's Job's curse. Now his lament Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? I wish I was never born, he says. And maybe you've felt that before. Why am I even here? Why am I even here if it's like this? He curses his existence. He laments his existence. And in verse 20, he asks a question, a theological question. That is a question about God. Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery? Why does God sustain the lives of those who suffer so much and not in his mercy take them out? Job does not question God's sovereignty. That's something we do. God is love, but maybe he can't really do anything about this. That's new. Job accepts the sovereignty of God as a given. He questions God's mercy, God's sense about this. He's gone from I wish I was never born to why was I born to why does God give life to those in misery at all? He pleads with God to take his life as a kind of mercy. Job 6, on that, oh, that I might have my request that it would please God to crush me. This would be my comfort. 
If God has decided to take everything good from him, why not just finish the job? In his despair and deep depression, he can only look back and he imagines no future. He wants pardon. Is Job sinning with his lips? Maybe. He may be sinning with his lips. He hasn't cursed God. But I'm not sure that's the point right now in the story. I don't think this chapter is here to make us scratch our heads at Job, at least in the main, but to hurt in our hearts for Job. We want to say, how can Job say this after he said the other things that he said? But this chapter is intended to make us say instead, what grief must such a godly man feel that he would say such dreadful and sad things? The emphasis here is not on the spiritual necessarily, but on the experiential. This is a verbal version of Job tearing his robes and shaving his head in grief like he did in chapter 1 and 2. It's not Job whining to his friends for pity. It's not even Job making a demand of God. This is the inner experience of a man, as he says, a man not made of stone or bronze, but of flesh. Chapter three takes us into Job's pain. And we can relate. In fact, that's why it's in the Bible. God wants us to relate here with Job. Job's pain, like ours, is complex and layered. It's complex and layered. It's a pain that is multidimensional, as we will see. It's spiritual, physical, theological, physiological, social. It's not something that we compartmentalize, we deal with in part of a day or on a day, and then it's over and we move on. It brings about feelings we simply cannot relate with words, though Job tries. Feelings we don't even understand ourselves when they're ours. Job's pain, like ours, is complicated and layered, and it's also a process. It's also a process. As many here know, there's the experience of loss, and then there's the aftermath of loss. There's the syllabus shock, and then there's the course the Lord has signed you up for, a course with no end. There's a changed life on the other side with its cyclical reminders of loss, Suffering is not like getting a scrape. You fall, you bleed, your body heals itself, and you move on. It may not have interrupted your life at all, unless you're a little one. It's more like losing your legs. It permanently changes every part of your life and your perspective now. You see everything from the level of a wheelchair. Job has his losses, and we have ours, and you have yours. And over a period of seven days, Job has had some time to think. Job's pain is like ours in that it's layered and complex. It's a process and it exposes and shapes our view of God. We might think questions about God are irrelevant or just for the religious types until we suffer. Then we will have to face the storm of theology we have with the theology we have. You see, Job is wrestling with theology. What does it mean that God is God and the world is the way that it is? How does that work? It's a reminder that everyone here is a theologian. Job wasn't a pastor, he was a dad, a husband, and a business owner. I can remember when I was a new Christian, my mom said to me, you're going to grow up and be a theologian. I didn't even know what that was, and it didn't sound like fun. I just liked the Bible and learning about God. Well, that's what it is. And even if you don't like the Bible learning about God, if you have a view of God at all, you're a theologian. Everyone is. Pastors and professors spend a lot of time on this, but everyone is a theologian. Everyone has thoughts about God, and those thoughts shape what you think and what you do and how you you live and feel in this world. And suffering is a litmus test for our theology. It helps us to see what we believe, and it's also a crockpot for our theology. It helps us to evaluate and to adjust what we believe. But if Job doesn't have his health... He does have his friends, right? They came to comfort him. They've stuck by him. How patient and understanding of them. Sort of. You remember how they arrived? When they saw Job, they mourned, tore their robes, cried out. That's a hopeless scene for Job to see in them. They responded as though to somebody who has died. And so they sit there with Job for seven days, quiet. Not because they're being understanding of a man who's suffering, but because they themselves have no idea what to say without hope. What will his friends say? 
We'll call this section, which spans chapter 4 to 25, the theological wrestling match, Job's theological wrestling match. So we have Job's theological crisis, and now we have Job's theological wrestling match, and a wrestling match it is, a verbal one. After seven days, Job opened his mouth, and now his friends opened theirs. If this were an actual wrestling match, it'd take about two hours to watch and 10 hours to watch carefully. We're just going to watch the highlight reel and dip in for one-liners and thought chunks as we go. Some of the best moves. Here's how this section works. If you were to read through it, Job's friends take turns giving speeches. So Job has said his piece in chapter 3. Job's three friends will talk. Friend one will talk. Job will respond. Friend two will talk. Job will respond. Friend three will talk. Job will respond. It's round one. There are three rounds. Uh, over a dozen speeches in all. But we're just going to zero in on each guy at a time. Listen to what this guy has to say, this guy has to say, and what this guy has to say, and then what Job has to say in response. It's the only way to go after it. So after Job bears his soul in chapter 3, friend number 1, Eliphaz, Eliphaz speaks first. Now, for the rest of this point, this, this header, this part of the sermon, I'm going to be reading lots of verses and moving around Job. I'm just going to do it. I might not even say where I'm at. My encouragement to you would be to listen and take it in. I said the same thing first service and I still heard tons of flipping. Oh, it'd be so stressful, folks. So just, uh, just listen to the word of God. So chapter four, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, Job, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling and you have made firm feeble knees. So far, so good. Encouraging enough, highlighting his strengths and reputation. Verse five, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. It's not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope. And it gets worse. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. And in chapter 5, for affliction does not come from dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. What is he saying? Job, no one suffers for no reason. Job, you know that we reap what we sow. God is giving you what you've asked for. You're just due. You've brought this on yourself. Eliphaz is a behaviorist. What you do is the basis for what God does to you. He even claims direct revelation from God in chapter four. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Translation into contemporary Christian vernacular. God told me to tell you. The familiar? Please don't say that. Please don't say that. His counsel, chapter 5, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. As for me, Job, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without wonder? He's exultant. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. He even promises Job healing, a whole lot of food, more children, and a long life. And he concludes, hear and know it for your good, Job. That's Eliphaz. And not just a little annoying is the way he weaves spiritual half-truths into his own advice. They all do this. They're spiritual talkers, they are. But these are canned academic responses that don't take into account the way the world is or the man in front of them. Bildad is next. Bildad follows Eliphaz and piggybacks off his theological perspective. He's just a little bolder in teasing out what it actually means. Let me give you an example. This is bold. Job 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, Job, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Job, your kids are dead because they sinned. His counsel's the same. If you will seek God, seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. If you will pour, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. 
And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. He says his life will be filled with laughter. How encouraging of Bildad. Bildad's also unique for his traditionalist values. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, for our days on earth are shadow. They will not teach you and tell you. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words out of their understanding? That's Bildad, appealing to history and our fathers and their ways and wisdom. Now, we haven't heard Job's side yet, but it's enough to say right now that he defends himself against these accusations and wrongdoing. And as the back and forth picks up, these guys get even ruder. Good night. Eliphaz at one point says in Job 15, should a wise man answer the, with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? For your iniquity teaches your mouth. In other words, Job, you're full of it and your sin is deceiving you. Bildad asks in chapter 8, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind, Job? And when Eliphaz and Bildad are done talking, Zophar is up. And Zophar is no better. Zophar is no good. He is the most insulting yet. Job 11. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you. For you say, my doctrine is pure and, my, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you're full of hot air and God is letting you off easy. That's why this sermon is titled, Job's Three Friends with Friends and Quotes. Zophar gives the same argument and counsels the others, but with an attention to the heart. With an attention to the heart. Job 11, if you prepare your heart, Job, you will search out with your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters have passed away. And your life will be drier than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning, Job. Oh, hope-giving. What flowery nonsense. Flowery spiritual nonsense. Don't be fooled by spiritual sounding words. Eliphaz is a behaviorist. Bildad, the traditionalist. Zophar, the religionist, focused on the heart. They are all reductionists, reducing human suffering to a very simple equation of cause and effect. They're all moralists, viewing that all suffering is a personal consequence of personal sin. And they're all spiritualists mixing God language and truth with the world's wisdom. God does marvelous things. His discipline is good. Seek him, seek him. Job says, give me a break. In Job 12, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you who does not know such things as these. How hard is it to hear someone say, God is good. Therefore, this is what's wrong with you. My friend, don't reject God's discipline. Job would say, well, of course I wouldn't do that. I accept his discipline. This isn't discipline. His conscience is clear. He's confessed his sin. My friends, this is the best of the world's wisdom apart from Revelation, is it not? Karma, karma is pretty cool these days. Here's a deep quote. How people treat you is their karma. How you react is yours. That'll, that'll motivate you, wouldn't it? Here's another, here's another uh, quote on karma. Karma comes after everyone eventually. You can't get away with screwing people over your whole life. I don't care who you are. What, got, what goes around comes around. That's how it works. Sooner or later, the universe will serve you the revenge that you deserve. Or maybe it's not karma. Maybe it's reincarnation. To quote Kurt Cobain for the first time from this pulpit ever. If you're really a mean person, you're going to come back as a fly and eat poop. So uh, I don't know what that guy believed. But reincarnation would have it that your experience of life now and in the next is a consequence of previous decisions and previous lives. 
course, there's some truth to some of this, not the incarnation, reincarnation part. What we do and do to others will have an effect on how we're treated and how things go for us. In fact, the wisdom literature is actually filled with this stuff. Job's friends are practically quoting Proverbs 22.8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Sow injustice, reap calamity. Pride comes before a fall. Job's friends aren't total morons. But what about my friend from fifth grade who was in a car accident and then severely mentally handicapped? On one day, he's playing with Legos, sword fighting in the backyard, telling jokes and reading stories with mom and dad. And the next day, he's confined to a wheelchair. He can't talk. He can't understand what you say. He's like a baby in a 12-year-old's body. And soon after that, he's living in the room across from the hall, across the hall from my own brother Tyler at an area children's nursing home. My brother Tyler, who contracted meningitis about a year, uh, at about a year into his life, Uh, and has brain damage himself. Are these guys getting theirs? Maybe Tyler for something he did in a previous life and maybe my friend for something he did in this life? Karma may have a nice logic to it, but karma and reincarnation are not cool. They're cruel. And so is what we might call the prosperity gospel. Very popular teaching from best-selling TV preachers that say, in short, give your life and money to God and God will give health and wealth to you. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, many others. Yes, I'm calling them out by name because I want them to stop talking and I want people to stop listening to them. The prosperity gospel they preach is cruel. So can be the more subtle language of God has a wonderful plan for your life. You have to find it. Once you find his plan, then you'll have meaning and purpose. I actually, uh, preachers as a hobby do just listening around. So I was actually listening on a website this last week to the beginning part of some guy's sermon that I'm not familiar with. And he actually said basically that. We all have a purpose. God has a wonderful plan for us. We need to find that purpose. And when we find that purpose, we have meaning. And when we don't have that purpose, then our life is bad. Are you kidding me? Makes sense, right? Well, think about it. Job was pursuing God's best life for his life, best for his life. He was in God's plan before the catastrophe and during and after the catastrophe. This was God's wonderful plan, but wonderful from the horizon of heaven, and that's it, not from the horizon of Job's life. So to speak in terms of wonderful plan without nuance is to deceive. Jesus calls us to a cross. It's true that as a general principle, we sow what we reap, God set the world up that way. But we have the book of Job precisely because God means to provide us with a qualification and a clarification against that. The book of Job is meant to clarify for us. The world works a certain way, but not all the time. Not all the time. Job knows this, and that's why he responds the way he does. In his speeches, Job expresses anger. Job expresses anger. And with colorful and imaginative insults. Job 16. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Job 13. Your maxims, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. You know what your words are like? A pile of ashes. That's what they're like. That's what he's saying. Tons of this stuff in there. These guys are nothing less than false teachers, and it's fine to get angry at people like this. But false teachers like this need more than to be thrown under the bus. Their false gospels need to be run over with good arguments. In his speeches, Job expresses his anger, and in his speeches, Job expresses arguments. He expresses arguments. His big beef with his friends is that they're totally wrong, and he has two plain facts for them from nature that he's going to appeal to that he doesn't even need scripture to know. First, Job is blameless, and his life is terrible. It's so terrible, he asks God to kill him, but maintains his innocence. Job 6, 10, this would be my comfort. If you would kill me, I would even exult in pain unsparing. So like, make it really bad. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Job is blameless and his life is terrible. And second, the wicked people who do wicked things often live happy lives and die in old age in peace with all their happy kids around them. The tents of the robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. They wrong the barren, childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow in mighty and power? 
Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol, the grave. But as sure as Job is of each of these convictions, it still doesn't answer why he's suffering. He just knows it's true. His suffering is irrational. So with still no answers, Job also expresses his anguish. He's expressed anger, arguments, and now his anguish. Job says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words to his friends? Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then I would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Some introspection here. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And in this anguish, he expresses his loneliness. He expresses loneliness. And he spills a lot of ink on this dynamic. Job 12, I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. And it's not just his friends. Chapter 19, he's put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends, they've forgotten me. My guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. He even speaks of the fringes of society turning on him. They laugh at me. Job chapter 30 Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. And now I've become their song. I am a byword to them. And they do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. I sure hope there's no one in this room that can relate with all of that. Job is an extreme example. But most people in this room, if not everyone, can relate with some of this. Friends who forget you, family who are estranged, the loneliness of people who don't know what to say so they avoid you even if they mean well but it hurts, the loneliness of someone who thinks they know what to say but alienates you in the process and without even knowing it. Let's be very careful about comforting people by saying I know exactly how you feel. It's not actually true and it doesn't comfort. Much better to say I can't imagine how you must feel or by highlighting some obscure positive like, at least you'll get to spend more time with your family now when a man loses his job. Or to a couple who is struggling eagerly to have children to say, jokingly, you can babysit my kids. Or to highlight a possible negative that would follow if they got what they wanted. Oh man, everything changed when I have kids. Just take your time. None of that is comfort. Or the loneliness of being accused of fault for your random suffering. I think God is trying to root out an idol in your life. You need to pray and have faith. See, this is sneaky stuff. This is the world's wisdom sneaking in. God isn't allowing this to change in your life. That happened in my life too. And when I relaxed and prayed and had faith, then God moved. Very careful about these things. We do not know that. We should not say it and speak for God. Travis New, who I opened the sermon up with, said to me he's received actually many comments like this and they haunt him, they don't help. You can probably relate with this. In the moment you say nice things and you move on, but it just keeps tumbling around in your head and every time you see the person, you remember the thing they said. Let's be gentle and careful. Soul killers are words like these. Untrue words multiply the pain and suffering. Unlistening words multiply the pain and suffering. And unfeeling words multiply the pain and suffering. And Jesus knows them all, by the way. He knows them all. And so we're not alone in our loneliness. Job is probably lonelier than you or I have ever been. But consider that Jesus was lonelier than Job. 
He was abandoned by his brothers and friends and mocked by the powerful and the fringes of society alike. A byword to them, spit at and despised. He sweat blood from anxiety on the night of his arrest while his disciples slept instead of praying as he asked them to twice. He went to the cross by himself and his disciples fled. Peter, kind of the, lead, the, the leader of the band, denying him not once, not twice, but three times, even after being told he would do so. And on the cross, Jesus even knew the abandonment of God, not the perceived abandonment of God, but the actual abandonment of God. Mark 15, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Old Testament scripture, he was fulfilling those words, and yet he took them on his lips because they expressed his experience. He knew exactly why he was hanging on the cross, but in his human experience, these words expressed perfectly his own sense of heartbroken forsakenness. And of course, he was forsaken for us. He was forsaken by his father and he took on a despised condition, left a great life in order that we might be accepted by his father who was rejecting him. He endured the rejection of man so that he could say to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you are not lonely. You have more light than Job had. You have a cross. Job was grasping unto all that he had, and we have much more. And so if this is like totally unfamiliar to you, and you've suffered loneliness and heartache and lost your whole life, which every human will, but apart from God, I have no idea what that is like, or I can't remember it. I thank the Lord for saving me as a teenager. And to you, Jesus says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're without hope and without God in the world apart from him. But those who are far off, he brings near by his blood. So come to him. Maybe your trouble is justly deserved. You're thinking, well, my suffering is like, I totally deserve it. <laughs> I understand it. It's not random. I ask for all of this. Well, Jesus is a friend to sinners. You see? He's a friend to sinners. And he will never leave you and nor forsake you if you come to him. And he calls us to a life of rejection too with him to carry our crosses mocked, ridiculed, and even hated. And this is in part what it means to become a Christian. In his loneliness, Job reminds us of Jesus and teaches us about the Christian life. But now back to the ring. Now back to the ring. Job has expressed his anger, his arguments, his anguish, and his loneliness. Well, by the third cycle, Eliphaz has only repeated himself. Bildad has almost nothing to say. He has like a short paragraph of things to say. And Zophar doesn't even open his mouth at this point. Zophar's done. He said all he knows how to say. He's probably the youngest guy. They said it all. I'd have nothing more. It's like they only had one wrestling move. It's easy and it doesn't work on Job. And they eventually give up. Job is wrestling with his friends. And Job was also in a wrestling match with God. He was also in a wrestling match with God. You see, Job responds to his friends in a number of ways. And one of those ways is by straight up ignoring them. Or maybe he'll say, you're a bunch of idiots. And then he just starts talking to God. Some of his speeches, he doesn't even address their arguments because they're running in circles and he has no time for it. He's already defeated it with his two points. He asks God to leave him alone. Job 7 when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. He asks God to leave him alone. He asks God why he's against him. I loathe my life. Let me know why you contend against me. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me and he has gnashed his teeth at me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. And so he asks God if God can feel pain. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? I can't help but think of the incarnation there. Or through the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, Jesus, God can answer yes. 
And he asks God to meet him in court. Behold, I have prepared my case. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And Job wrestles with his friends and Job wrestles, we see, with God. This is Job's theological wrestling match and it's a tough one and Job is strong. We've heard Job in a theological crisis and we've witnessed, witnessed Job in a theological wrestling match. And finally, we see Job, we listen to Job's theological conclusions. We listen to Job's theological conclusions. Chapters 26 through 31. And in these chapters, Job gets the last word among his friends. And these are thick, God-honoring, worshipful reflections. That's what they are. It's like the arc of a psalm where a man starts, starts in despair and ends in worship. And this should cheer our hearts for Job's suffering has only increased since the sermon began. His kids are still gone. His, uh, his assets and wealth is still gone. What has been added is the torment of his friends who chew him out and accuse him falsely and lie to him and tell him his kids are dead because they sinned. And Satan is surely behind it all. We haven't heard Satan mentioned once in all these chapters, by the way, if you were to read them straight through. But I might suggest he's actually not gone, but working behind the scenes as he always is. He's the one tormenting Job with dreams. He's the one planting his own worldly wisdom into the minds of his friends. He's the one tempting everyone to be loveless and selfless who knows Job and abandon him for death. So Job has passed a kind of third test in this. He has not cursed God as Satan promised, even if he has not suffered perfectly. So what are Job's worshipful conclusions? He's got three. In chapters 26, Job concludes that God is all-powerful. He says that God hangs the earth on nothing. That's a new favorite verse in the Bible. God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds. He covers the face of the full moon. He has inscribed boundary between light and darkness. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. He's the creator. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And in a blow to his friends who don't get this, he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his way. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? Job concludes that God is all-powerful. And in chapter 27, he concludes that God is all-good. He will not just let injustice go without justice. And here, it almost sounds like Job takes on the theology of his friends. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes his life away? Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. It hurls him without pity and he flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps his hands at him and hisses at him from its place. The wicked will be punished. I think what's going on here is that Job is seeing the ultimate horizon. This is an ultimate perspective of justice. And I say this because on a number of occasions, Job has had an ultimate perspective of his own vindication. In fact, in the midst of desperate words across these chapters, he said some amazingly hopeful things. In chapter 19, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Listen to this. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. And my heart faints within me. We don't get a lot on these guys' takes of the afterlife in the Old Testament, but you get a hint here. He's expecting something on the other side of the grave. He's all-powerful. He's all-good. And in chapter 28, Job concludes that God is all-wise. And this chapter is a key to the book. He begins by reflecting on the wisdom of mankind that can produce anything from the earth. Mining is his example. Human beings mine for silver and gold. We turn mountains upside down to find it. And then he writes... But where shall wisdom be found? Man does not know its worth. It cannot be bought with gold. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it. Got a shout out to Ethiopia in there. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? You see, this is the question of all the wisdom literature. And this is at the heart of this book. 
how can we know how the world works? How can we know how to live in it? How can we know God's ways? God understands the way to it, he says, and knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Job does not understand the meaning of his suffering. But right here at his best, he acknowledges the one who does. He knows he needs God to speak and he will hear God speak in time. Job concludes that God is all powerful and he is all good and he is all wise. And in chapter 29 through 30, Job makes his closing argument for his innocence. And I'm gonna give something away here. Job may be right that he does not deserve what God has dished out, but perhaps that's actually irrelevant. Perhaps his focus on this at all is a sign of a problem in his own soul. Perhaps he's been innocent, but he may not be innocent in his self-justification here. Though in much more beautiful terms, in the last chapter he says, in effect, I've not lusted after virgins, I've kept my integrity, I have not committed adultery, I was generous to the poor, I did not put my trust in riches and did not worship the sun, I did not wish evil on my enemies, I hosted strangers and I confessed my sins. And he closes by saying, let the Almighty answer me. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. And with that, the words of Job, it says, are ended. In the first verse of chapter 32 So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. See, Job was done talking. He had made his case for his innocence. And his three friends were now done talking as well. They weren't going to convince Job otherwise. So who's right and who's wrong? Or are they both wrong? The Lord will answer Job, but that's two sermons away. First, an angry young man had six chapters to spend talking to Job. And we'll listen to that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for this book. We sure need it. We need all these chapters. Chapters we could only highlight this morning. But we need them all because you gave them to us. Our suffering is a process. It does leave us lonely. We do anguish in it. We ask many questions. But Father, we're thankful for a whole lot of light, more light than Job had. Pray that we would trust it, that we would come to Jesus and rest, weary and heavy laden, and find rest. That we would look to you and to him for wisdom in how wisely to suffer in this life. In Jesus' name. Amen.